Let us pray. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. There have been only two occasions in my life that I have had the honor of being in the presence of a sitting American president. The first time was nearly 30 years ago when I was a junior in college. It was during that spring that several close friends of mine loaded up and drove across the country to attend another friend's graduation from the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado. The commencement speaker that weekend was to be the President of the United States. I still remember it as one of the grandest of graduation ceremonies that I'd ever witnessed before. Cadets in their uniforms marching to the sound of a military brass band, a stadium full of friends and parents and well-wishers, and all the pomp and circumstance that only our American military can provide. And the highlight of the ceremony, at least for me anyway, was the graduation address given by a then-American president who was at the height of his popularity. I can still vividly see the president in my memory as he walked out into the open and approached that stage where a cadet honor guard greeted him with sabers drawn in salute. The stadium roared and the band played hail to the chief as he climbed the steps and walked over to the podium to give his speech. And after his address, F-16 fighter jets from the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds streaked across the sky over the stadium in honor of the graduates and in honor of the president. It certainly was not the United States Navy's far more superior Blue Angels, but it was amazing just as well. And it all certainly made for a moment in my life that I will never forget. That was a smart move on my part, wasn't it? The second time I saw a U.S. president was several years later when I was in Washington, D.C. with another group of college students wandering down the street nearest to the Library of Congress. We were in that area because we had heard the library was hosting a special event that the president would be attending. And as we walked down the street, we sensed that something big was about to occur. The police were everywhere on the street and they were setting up barricades and people were beginning to gather behind those barricades and watch. So we decided we'd sit there on the sidewalk and join them. Within 30 minutes, the sirens began to sound and the sleek black SUVs and black limousines of the presidential motorcade came rushing down the street. I distinctly remember those SUVs that preceded the limousines because their windows were rolled down, revealing secret servicemen in black flak jackets with submachine guns in clear view. Then came the limousines with the American flags flowing from just above the headlights. Inside, for just a few brief seconds, we caught a glimpse of another president at the height of his publicity and joy, waving as the procession whisked by, heading back towards the White House. Those were the only two times that I have ever been near a president of the United States, and I still remember them quite vividly. 
And really, aside from the Dalai Lama, very important guy in his own right, a few archbishops of Canterbury and our own presiding bishops of the Episcopal Church, that's the only time I've really been anywhere near the presence of someone who might carry the title of a world leader. I did once while visiting Rome have a ticket to attend a papal audience with then Pope Benedict XVI. But when I arrived at the Vatican for the audience, I found out that morning's audience was actually happening 18 miles south of Rome at the Pope's summer palace. So I missed that opportunity. But in each and every case, from those two moments that I saw a president flowing by to sitting next to a presiding bishop who'd recently preached at a royal wedding in Windsor in front of the queen herself, it was always the arrivals and the processions that followed before and after that identified the coming into your presence of someone important engaged in, engaged in some sort of influence and leading their church or leading their country or even leading those who would follow them in the world. <clears throat> Today we find ourselves remembering again and claiming our place at the procession and entrance into Jerusalem of someone that all of us Christians should always identify as being far more important than any bishop, any pope, or even any American president. Someone we proclaim on Sundays and every other day in between as the Savior of the world, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. On Palm Sunday, we join the crowds that welcome Jesus into that holy city of Jerusalem with cries of Hosanna to the son of David and blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And just as they did over 2,000 years ago, we too on this day hold up our palm fronds and celebrate his arrival. Yet the entrance of the King of Kings could not have been any more different from what I witnessed in Colorado or in Washington, D.C. all those years ago. Rather than a military parade and honor guard, Jesus is met by dusty, tired, oppressed people on the road into the occupied city of Jerusalem. Rather than expensive, exquisitely crafted sabers and swords, Jesus is saluted with leaves from a simple plant that thrives everywhere in the Holy Land as well as here in our own home state of Florida. Instead of a powerful war horse, instead of a great chariot with armed guards all around it, instead of barricades and shields for protection, Jesus sends his disciples out to borrow a pack animal, a donkey and its colt, which he rides into the gates of Jerusalem, not seated on some nice leather saddle, but on cloaks and blankets that are thrown across that small animal's back. We are tempted to forget out of the simple familiarity with this morning's story, what the deep contrast of those two images are meant to bring into our minds and our hearts, what Jesus is intentionally doing when he enters Jerusalem this way. The deliberate reversing of the symbols of power should stress strongly that Jesus is a different kind of king and lord from the Roman Caesar and from every other earthly ruler and leader before or since. And on Palm Sunday, Jesus is proclaiming that his kingdom is something very different from all of those other kingdoms as well, different from that kingdom of Rome and different from any other nation state that has ascended to power and prestige before or since. 
Jesus's kingdom is a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of sacrificial love for all, where the lowly are lifted up and the powerful are thrown down from their thrones. Jesus is coming into the world to be the new Adam, the new first man, come to finally begin full completion of God's plan from the beginning for creation, hurrying forward into Jerusalem this morning to do nothing less than touch and reconstruct the most terrifying part that has come into human existence and experience since that creation, the darkest and most frightening piece that we all will face one day in our human lives. Jesus processes on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem to embrace and take on pain and death so that by touching and embracing it, he can totally turn it upside down, overcome it, and set the process of creation speeding back in the right direction for all of God's children. Jesus has a different world to announce, one so in love with creation and humanity It will bear all the violence. It'll bear all the suffering. It'll bear all the misunderstandings and hatreds and inflictions. It'll bear all the pandemics. And then it dies, nailed to a wooden cross in order to defeat that death and give new life, new hope, and new promise to all of us who follow him. You see, just like all of us this morning, all of those dusty, well-traveled people who first welcomed Jesus as the son of David quickly turn on him and they condemn him in that story of the passion, all crying out the second time, crucify him, crucify him. Yet even in that awful moment, Jesus continues to love us and love us to the end so that he can overturn death and death's sinful kingdom and show us the way into a kingdom that was intended for us, a kingdom of life. Through Christ's suffering, there is no place now that we can ever fall that Jesus will not meet us and pick us up and bear us along. There's no darkness that we can stumble into that Jesus has not already seen and that he cannot already illuminate. There's no burden we can struggle under that Jesus cannot hoist up as he hoisted up that heavy cross. The way of the cross over those palm-covered streets into Jerusalem and then onto that rocky path of this Passion Sunday onto Golgotha will become for all of us the way of life and the way of salvation and the way of peace. Palm Sunday, brothers and sisters, is the beginning of that walk with Christ through the holy week that lays ahead. We have a king that is asking us to follow him into this new kingdom, to claim our own seat at that last supper that comes on Monday, Thursday, to gaze upon the wood and nails of the cross on Good Friday, and then to gather if we feel so called in the cold darkness to see the kindling of a new flame on that Sunday morning and sing again the first hymns of Easter. It is an invitation to something, I have to tell you, far more spectacular than glorious motorcades and clanging sabers and grand salutes. This invitation is an invitation to the desperate hope this world needs, to real freedom and to real unceasing love and to a life that is here now and is also eternal. Brothers and sisters, let us take up our cross 
this Holy Week and for always and follow Jesus, the Lord and King of love and of life. Amen.